Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Good morning, everyone. If you could please make your way back to your seats. And if you have a Bible, open to the book of Job. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here, and um, if this is your first Sunday or you were critical on Brian doing announcements, let me just tell you, announcements are so much harder than they seem. I don't know why, but having done announcements for a number of years, uh, it seems like that five minutes would be really easy, but a lot can go wrong in front of a few hundred people. So um, if Brian is in the room, I'm not sure if he made it back yet. Um, give him a hug. He had a, he had a rough announcement morning, and we've all been there who have done announcements. Well, we are in the book of Job, so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into today's message. Father, we thank you that you are a God who can be trusted. Thank you that you are a Father who can be trusted. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the inspiration of your word, and we thank you for the book of Job, which is among the darkest chapters of the Bible in many ways, and answers some of the ultimate questions, and helps us to grapple with some of the most difficult human experiences. And I pray in this room this morning that you, Holy Spirit, would minister to those who find themselves in the middle of perplexity and difficulties. Pray you minister to those who have suffered a great deal in their lives. Whether it's wrong done to them, or physical suffering, or all of the above, we pray, I pray that you would care and minister and give hope and freedom. And Lord, as we just walk through some of the sufferings of Job, we pray that Lord, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be encouraged, and we would run to you, Jesus. I ask for your help to preach this message. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we learn about this man. If you were here last week, Bob did a great job giving us insights from Job chapter 1. And if you're familiar with the story, you know the big idea, that Job was a righteous man. God, for reasons he only knows, presented Job to Satan. And Satan said, the only reason Job is so blameless and upright and fears you and lives in obedience to you is because his life has been easy, because his life is marked with blessing. Job was a wealthy man. He was a father of ten children. He was a man of status and good reputation. He was a very well-respected, God-fearing man. And in the book of Job, we learn of his sufferings and his response and the counsel that he receives. And on two separate occasions, God allows 
Satan to afflict Job in very pronounced ways. We're going to talk about that some today. But it's important to note that the book of Job is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. The purpose of the book of Job is to equip us, to make us wise, to make us men and women who fear the Lord in the middle of suffering and perplexities. It is a real gift from the Lord that we have the book of Job. So one of the most difficult things about being a Christian is wrestling through evil and pain and loss and suffering. Uh, the New King James Study Bible says this about the book of Job. At one time or another, almost everyone has felt like Job, or I would add will maybe one day feel like Job, while going through trials and times of suffering. We are often overwhelmed by self-pity. We want an explanation for why God allows the very real anguish of a sufferer. And it is very real. The book of Job can help us in the time when we are surrounded with troubles by giving us a glimpse of God's perspective on our suffering. And the title of this message is really part two of last Sunday's Passing the Job Test, when relentless disaster comes upon us. And the big idea that we're going to look at as we sort of survey chapter 1, 2, and 3 is really uh, a concern I would have, a pastoral concern or encouragement, is this. God must be our refuge, refuge amidst the relentless storms of suffering. God must be our refuge, the place we go for safety and peace and security amidst the relentless storms of suffering. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, in Job's life, the earth gave way. The mountains moved. The waters roared and foamed and raged. And we learn it was very disorienting even for a God-fearing, upright believer. The story of Job reminds me of Something happened to me when I was little. I was at the beach with my grandparents. I was probably five. This might be one of my earliest memories. And I was playing at the, the water's edge. And I was looking towards the ocean. My grandparents were behind me. I was playing in the water's edge. And apparently the tide came, came in. And I got sucked out in a, in a rip tide, in a rip current. And I remember trying to hold on to the sand to, for security and I couldn't grab anything. I remember just going through my fingers, and I remember I was just going out, and then I began to tumble in the waves, and I, I remember just sudden fear and panic hitting me, and I was being tossed around. I was scared, 
in my little five-year-old mind, I, I, I thought it was over. And trials and suffering can feel like that. As Christians, we can experience that experience at times where we get tossed and knocked around and we go to grab onto something. It's like grabbing sand and we can't get a grip and we feel like we're just in free fall. What I didn't know is my grandfather was sitting on the beach and looked up. And so he ran into the ocean and grabbed me and pulled me to safety. What we learn from the book of Job, though we don't understand the whys often, we do know that there is a good God in heaven that is trustworthy that we can run to for refuge. This morning, I want us to think just about the weight of suffering. And in particular, we're going to get to Job's suffering. But you're going to see it has all kinds of application to us. You know, we live in a a wild world that one day all is well, and then the next day calamity can strike. I think of, uh, many of you remember this, of, of September 11th. I was working at a school agency when the two planes hit the, the Trade Center towers and the other plane crashed in Shanksville. And I remember... I was at work, and we're watching this on screens, and it's a school agency, so the phones begin to ring off the hook. I remember thinking a lot of things. I remember thinking there are moms and dads dying. There are sons and daughters who will never come home. There are brothers and sisters. There are neighbors. Just this massive loss. And I remember that day. One of the things that struck me immediately is here in Indiana, Pennsylvania, it was a beautiful Warm, sunny day. And I remember looking up at the sky and praying and thinking, what a wild world we live in. Under this beautiful sunny day, not too far away, all chaos is breaking loose. And so we as Christians, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a hope and a refuge, and we need to learn how to lean in on the Lord when calamity strikes of whatever degree. And the book of Job is going to help us. So I'm going to do five insights today. The first one is this. Relentless suffering is excruciatingly painful even for the most godly. I think this is an important thing to understand that often gets missed. Relentless suffering is painful, excruciatingly painful, even for the most godly. Job was one of the the most godly people of his age. And the book of Job, he grapples with the pain and loss and confusion that he's experiencing. The first calamity that struck him It involved the death of his ten children. His ten children died. They were killed. His servants, many of his servants were killed. He lost a large amount of his wealth. All in one day. 
At the end of that day, Job says in Job 1, 20 and 22, this is a God-fearing man. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshipped. He acknowledged the Lord that he had been following for many years. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He bowed. He submitted. He put his head down and his hands up. And he worshipped. And last week, Bob pointed out that Job passed that first exam. But as we learn in the book of Job, that was just the first exam. And that was day one. And often, day one is a lot different than day 10 and day 50 and day 100 and day 1,000. We get kind of an insight into to Job's suffering. But for whatever reason, a second test came. And it says this, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, For where have you come? Satan answered, the Lord said, from going to and fro on earth and walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against to destroy him without reason. So he says, look at Job. I'm going to show you Job again. His family was wiped out. And he's still trusting me. So Satan says in verse 4 of chapter 2, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Boils. His skin grotesque. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. In other words, Satan said, okay, if you allow me to inflict him physically, he's going to curse you. Let me try. Now, we don't know why God allowed that to happen. But the infliction began physically. At the same time, he's grieving the loss of his ten children, adult children. And now, not only is he changing physically in appearance, but there's immense pain that's coming with that. And we learn later in Job, the boils are so gross and painful that there's even worms crawling in his body. And he is in absolute misery, both emotionally, psychologically, and physically. Keep in mind, Job does not know 
there's a dialogue in heaven happening about him. He has no idea. All he knows is he went to bed one night, woke up the next day, and calamity struck his children. And then sometime later, physical affliction came upon him as well. What he also knows is though he was not perfect, he was a good man. He was a God-fearing man. He was upright in all his ways. So there was nothing to indicate that his sin had brought this upon him at all. And he holds to that throughout the entire book of Job. One day, he went from being a godly, well-respected father to a man, as we learn later in Job, where children were just mocking him and laughing at him because of how physically deformed he was. His own family members, extended family, didn't want to be around him anymore. This is a man that people would go to at one point for counsel and had the highest respect. And the sense of loss and grief in the book of Job is immense. It's hard to describe in words how immense his suffering would have been. Now Job has some friends that we're going to learn more about in a few weeks. But they hear of the disaster and evil that has struck him. Look at Job 2, 11 and 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, that can be translated disaster as well, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. So they get word. Our, our friend Job is suffering. He has lost his children. He's in deep grief. He's in physical turmoil and pain. And as good friends do, they come to comfort and help. But look what happens when they come. Verse 12, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. So this is like, you know, if you've ever had a, a child who got harmed and there's blood everywhere, Probably one of the parents is better with blood than the other. You don't want the parent who freaks out at sight and then gets dizzy to be the caretaker in that situation. This is what his friends were like. They came to help. As soon as they saw him, they completely freak out. And when they saw him, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. They begin to wail and cry. He's so deformed from the sickness they don't even know who he is. If someone wouldn't have said, there's where Job is. They're so overwhelmed by the grief and the loss that it, it affects them emotionally. If it affects them to that degree, imagine if you were him or his wife. See, the weight of the situation completely overtook them. It says they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And as good friends, they stayed. Look, look at what they did. Verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. 
They were so overwhelmed by the situation that they were silenced. And they sat and they sat. Now, because we have the book of Job, having read chapter 4 through into the 30s, they, they should have kept silent. They would have done better. But we're going to get to that part another day. But they're good friends. They're there in crisis. That's what good friends do. That's what we should do as Christians. And sometimes it's, it's far better just to be there than to speak, particularly at the outset of a crisis. And one of the purposes of Job is to equip us, not just to endure suffering on our own, but to care for others who do endure suffering. We learn both what we could do or should do and what we shouldn't do. But I think one of the things that we don't want to miss here is the godliest people, the most mature Christians you know, maybe you yourself, can be so rocked by disaster and sudden difficulty that it just flips you upside down for a while. That is not a unique experience to Job. Some of you in this room have experienced that. It's like the rip current, and you're flipping around. doesn't mean your relationship with the Lord isn't real. doesn't mean that you're not mature in your faith. It does mean that the gravity of the situation has just swept you away for a while. There's no way to live in this world for a long period of time and not have some degree of the fallenness and brokenness of the world come in and affect us. Insight number two. When this occurs, relentless suffering can distort our image and view of God. When pain breaks, it can really distort our view of God. Job 3.1 says, After this, Job opened, opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. After this, Job opened his mouth. After this new wave of calamity, of physical suffering came, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Now it's important to note, he did not curse the Lord himself, though he, he started to teeter that way. He, didn't, he was not suicidal in, the, in the, the idea that he wanted to end his life. But he certainly, as we're going to see in parts of chapter 3, said it would have been so much better if I had never been born. Why did he say that? Because of the weight of the pain and discomfort that he was under. Job was saying, in effect, no more birthday celebrations, no more birthday cake, no more parties to celebrate another passing year. This pain is unbearable. I wish I would have never been born. Then he says at the end of Job 3, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The thing I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet, 
I have no rest. I'm sure the internal workings of Job were just so shaken and rocked. The very thing that he feared came upon him. And for some of us, some of you, the very thing that you fear may come upon you or has come upon you. Harm done to you. Betrayal. Cancer. A phone call in the middle of the night from a police officer knowing that very bad news is on the other end. Maybe a combination of all those things. When those things come, we've got to be really careful to not let those things determine our view of God. And it will be extremely tempting. They will distort and twist the view of the Lord. And Satan will inflame and whisper and accuse and tell you lies about the Lord. See, the, in the book of Job, he is so overwhelmed by this grief. Now eventually, the book ends and he gets a, a clear glimpse of the Lord and he gets a, a clearer picture and he, he ends in a good place. But as you begin to sink, and as you are in free fall as a Christian, as you are disoriented by your circumstances, and as the once, what once was this very clue, clear view of the Lord gets very fuzzy and darkened, and you're trying to clean it up and see more clearly, you need to run to the Lord for help. You need to run to His people for help. See, these are dangerous times for a Christian, when our view of the Lord is being distorted, when what we think about God, we see primarily through our suffering and the calamity that has struck us. See, when, when those times come, here's some of the temptations for us as Christians. I believe Satan is the stoker of these lies that come. Have you ever thought these things? God's not a good father. He's not a good father. At least he's not a good father to you. He doesn't love you. He may love others, but look at your life. Is this what you call love? You are getting what you deserve. Do you remember what you did when you were 15 years old? Or even worse, God has left you. He has indeed forsaken you. I don't know why you pray anymore. He's never heard your prayers anyway. Not to mention that book that you cling on to so hard. It's not really true. God is not really good. He's not really powerful. Why are you fighting so hard against sin and temptation? Look at your life. Look what God has done to you. What's it worth anyway? Why don't you just dive headlong into Rebellion against Him. He certainly does not think of you or care about you. Lies like that. When we are in the midst of bombardment from trials and suffering, 
those lies that might not be tempting on sunny days become very tempting on suffering days and suffering years and suffering decades. And you got to fight by the power of the Holy Spirit against those lies. Everything I just said was a lie. God is good. God does love you. If you are in Christ, He will never forsake you. Because you are in Christ, your sins are not counted against you. Because you are in Christ, you can come boldly to the throne of grace at all times. Because you are in Christ, you are an adopted son and daughter that He preciously loves, cares for. You've got to fight those things. See, in Job, the first day, he does well. As the days clip by, he begins to lose his footing, which is really, really common. Keep in mind, remember, this was not a mediocre, God-fearing man. This was the choice the top of the God-fearing people. And he is faltering, and he is stumbling, and he is beginning to sink over the overwhelming grief. Which leads us to the third insight. Relentless suffering can take us down dark and treacherous paths. Relentless, bombarding suffering. Physical affliction, loss, relational affliction, the whole combination of the brokenness and fallenness of this word, world. He, he gives an honest take in Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3 really is in many ways one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible other than maybe the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm so thankful it's in the Bible because he, he is just grappling with the grief and struggle and loss that he's experiencing. See, he's on a dark and treacherous path. We're just going to read, I'm going to read verse 1 through 10, Job 3. And I would encourage you to read the whole on your own. After this, Job opened his mouth. He cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let the thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up the Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. And verse after verse after, that's the same thing. I wish I was never born. This suffering is too painful. See, he's in a dark place. Throughout church history, theologians would call this the dark night of the soul. It's when you begin to sink and it feels like there is no bottom to it. 
There's nothing you can put your foot on. You're just falling. And all that you knew to be true and right and helpful feels gone. See, on this dark and treacherous path, there are some pitfalls and temptations that are so common. Despair. Depression. Raging anger and bitterness and hopelessness. Or maybe just a hard crisp over your heart and mind where you just become cynical and hardened and you trust no one or no thing. See, these are the times when you are on this dark path that you have to run to the Lord. Lord, I'm in danger. I'm disoriented. I'm confused. I need help. You call your trusted Christian friends. Maybe just to pray and to not give any counsel initially. But to recognize you are you're on a path. It's not a path that other Christians haven't walked. If you Read the book of Job. You read church history. Many have walked on this path. But it is a dangerous path. Insight 4. Relentless suffering does not give us a license to sin or curse God. Relentless suffering does not give us a license to sin or curse God. But it does make sin more tempting at times. And it does make charging God with wrong more tempting. Let me read this again. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin, charge God with wrong. That's when he passed the first test. But after the second one, listen to what his wife said. And keep in mind, before you judge her, she has lost ten children. Ten of her children have died. And her husband is now completely covered in grotesque boils. And everything they know to be normal in their lives has crumbled right before them. So the grief of her must be overwhelming. So she says this in verse 9 to her husband. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's not lacking clarity. But he said to her, so he's trying to encourage her, he still has faith in the Lord. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak, meaning one of the non-God-fearing people. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil or disaster? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he's trying to care for his wife. And he's trying to remind her this is not a, an opportunity to curse God. This is not an opportunity to charge God. We're going to fear Him. We're going to bow our head low. We're going to trust Him. But you learn in Job, he's got all kinds of questions. Why is this happening? And his friends are giving him all kinds of answers which aren't accurate or true. But we must not charge God when we're walking through these things. As Bob said last week, God is God. We are not. We have to trust 
and submit to him. But a very, another very common, very common temptation while these kind of things are happening is to go to sin for refuge. See, I think a lot of times when we think of substance abuse, drug and alcohol abuse, or sexual sin, we don't often think of them in terms of refuge. But many, many, many people, even Christians, go to substances, alcohol or other drugs, prescription pain medicine, or sexual sin for refuge. The problem is they're not a real refuge. It's like knowing a tornado is coming and you find a, a rusty shed to hide in, thinking you're protected. You're not protected. Feels like you're protected for a moment, but as soon as it comes, it just sweeps it away and you in it. It's a common temptation. It's a common temptation among Christians. There's no life there. There's no relief there. There's no true, lasting refuge there. And what you end up doing is in the midst of your grief, as you're, you're just struggling with the world, you, you inadvertently put yourself in another trap. So you have the suffering trap that you're experiencing and trying to work through, and then you stepped your foot in another trap that now you're trying to get out of that one as well. And remember... Satan is a devourer. He wants to destroy. And so he's having a field day as these kind of things are happening. Chances are some of you are there right now. That you have vices and sins that you're going to for refuge. Some of them may be overtly sinful, like drugs and alcohol, that you go way into for refuge. Or secret sexual sin best thing you can do is to confess and bring that out into the light so that you can be free the way the Lord desires to free you. Others, maybe it's not sinful, so it's a little more subtle, but you have gone headlong into your work and you are a workaholic and you hide in it and you don't deal with what's going on in here and you just bury yourself in the work. See, that is not the freedom the Lord wants for you. Jesus came to bring freedom. The Holy Spirit is in you to give you life and refreshment. Jesus said about himself, he's the living water. We can actually experience living water in the middle of pain and loss. Last insight, relentless suffering should lead us to trust and the only one who can truly bring hope and relief. When you eventually, after getting tossed around, and you look up, Lord, you're the only one I, I can hope in. Job eventually gets there. Job 19, verse 25 and 26, he says this incredible Old Testament statement about what's to come. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
See, Job longed for one who would stand up for him, who would vindicate him, who would speak on his behalf, who would plead his cause to his friends and to those around. He longed for it. He longed for a vindicator, an empathizer, an advocate, a guide, a shepherd, one who would dearly care for him. And we learn in Hebrews that we have such a one. Since then, see, you have something Job did not have. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest, listen to this, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Betrayal. His closest associates, they leave him. Closest friends. Falsely accused. Falsely tried. Falsely crucified. Everyone was scattering. People spitting on him, mocking him. He's he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. See, we have Jesus. So verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It is a gracious throne because of Jesus that we may, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, some of you you're Christians, but you, you, you've been stuffing stuff for so long that there are just do not touch areas of your heart and soul that the Lord wants to get into because He wants to care for you. He wants to heal you. He wants to refresh you. He doesn't want you to continue in your Christian life just stuffing and acting like it doesn't hurt and acting like He doesn't care and acting like I'm okay, but don't touch that area see the Lord wants to care for that area today as I was preparing this um, and praying and talking to some of the prayer team uh, Denise Botsford believed that the Lord had given her a word uh, to encourage the church and it's along these lines so right before I close this message I'd like Denise to come up and if I could have the worship team come up too Um, Denise is going to share here in a moment and then I'll wrap up, and then we'll, we'll sing a final song. The Lord wants to demonstrate his love today to people who have scars. This could be from something that is self-inflicted. For others, it is a scar toward God because of a hurt or a disappointment. And for others, it is a scar that is the result of something that is done by someone else. And one thing about a scar is that the original injury has already healed. So you go through life thinking that you're okay. But there is a hardening or like a protective covering that is formed. And the Lord wants to soften that area and bring healing. And for some, like when Joe talked about the pressing down and hiding and just 
like putting on a face and acting like things are okay. And um, the Holy Spirit is speaking to certain hearts right now and saying, my loved one, I am coming to you. I am coming to you and bringing to your mind what I want to heal for you. And the second thing about a scar is that it acts as a signpost. And it always points back to that original injury or offense. And it causes us to create labels for ourselves or to even limit ourselves. And the Lord wants to bless you today with a deeper measure of healing so that in going forward, you no longer bring glory to the scar by always talking about the injury, but you bring glory to the healer by talking about what he has delivered you from today. So let's stand. What I'd like to do is pray. I want to encourage those of you that you feel like the Lord is putting his finger on you. I would encourage you to come up for prayer. If I could have the prayer team come up too, during the song or at the end of church. But don't let another day go by where you just put a lid on it again and then you begin to stuff it again. The Lord has a lot of freedom. And I believe even joy and peace for you. And I believe one of the, the, the other things he wants to care for you in is the area of fear. Because of your past, you are riddled with fear. And the Lord wants to free you of that as well. He wants to give you a strong faith, a strong trust, a strong confidence in him. So let's pray and then we'll sing. And if the prayer team could come up. Father, Lord, care for your children right now. Lord, you know each of them by name. You know the numbers of hair on their head. You, you formed them so intricately. You know the pain and the loss and the suffering, the hurt, the confusion, and uh, even covering and stuffing. Lord, would you care for your kids? Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself in powerful ways here in the remaining moments of this service? And Lord, we pray what you do now would have lifelong implications of joy and freedom. And we, uh, we will give you all the glory for that. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.